Chapter fifty three, part one of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. Chapter 53. Fate of the Eastern Empire, Part 1. Fate of the Eastern Empire in the 10th century. Extent and Division. Wealth and Revenue. Palace of Constantinople. Titles and Offices. Pride and Power of the Emperors. Tactics of the Greeks, Arabs, and Franks. Loss of the Latin Tongue. Studies and Solitude of the Greeks. A ray of historic light seems to beam from the darkness of the tenth century. We open with curiosity, and respect the royal volumes of Constantine Porphyrogenitus, which he composed at a mature age for the instruction of his son, and which promised to unfold the state of the Eastern Empire, both in peace and war, both at home and abroad. In the first of these works he minutely describes the pompous ceremonies of the church and palace of Constantinople, according to his own practice and that of his predecessors. In the second he attempts an accurate survey of the provinces, the themes, as they were denominated, both of Europe and Asia. The system of Roman tactics, the discipline and order of the troops, and the military operations by land and sea, are explained in the third of these diadatic collections, which may be ascribed to Constantine or his father Leo. In the fourth, of the administration of the empire, he reveals the secrets of the Byzantine policy, in friendly or hostile intercourse with the nations of the earth. The literary labours of the age, the practical systems of law, agriculture, and history, might redound to the benefit of the subject and the honour of the Macedonian princes. The sixty books of the Basilics, the Code and Pandex of Civil Jurisprudence, were gradually framed in the three first regions of that prosperous dynasty. The art of agriculture had amused the leisure, and exercised the pens, of the best and wisest of the ancients, and their chosen precepts are comprised in the twenty books on the geoponics of Constantine. At his command, the historical examples of vice and virtue were methodized in fifty-three books, and every citizen might apply, to his contemporaries or to himself, the lesson or the warning of past times. From the august character of a legislator, the sovereign of the East descends to the more humble office of a teacher and a scribe. And if his successors and subjects were regardless of his paternal cares, we may inherit and enjoy the everlasting legacy. A closer survey will indeed reduce the value of the gift and the gratitude of posterity. In the possession of these imperial treasures, we may still deplore our poverty and ignorance, and the fading glories of their authors will be obliterated by indifference or contempt. The basilics will sink to a broken copy, a partial and mutilated version, in the Greek language, of the laws of Justinian. But the sense of the old civilians is often superseded by the influence of bigotry, and the absolute prohibition of divorce, concubinage, and interest for money, enslaves the freedom of trade and the happiness of private life. In the historical book, a subject of Constantine might admire the inimitable virtues of Greece and Rome. 
he might learn to what a pitch of energy and elevation the human character had formerly aspired. But a contrary effect must have been produced by a new edition of the lives of the saints, which the great Logothate, or Chancellor of the Empire, was directed to prepare. And the dark fund of superstition was enriched by the fabulous and florid legends of Simon the Metaphrased. The merits and miracles of the whole calendar are of less account in the eye of a sage than the toil of a single husbandman, who multiplies the gifts of the Creator and supplies the food of his brethren. Yet the royal authors of the Geoponics were more seriously employed in expounding the precepts of the destroying art, which had been taught since the days of Xenophon as the art of heroes and kings. But the tactics of Leo and Constantine are mingled with the baser ally of the age in which they lived. It was destitute of original genius. They implicitly transcribed the rules and maxims which had been confirmed by victories. It was unskilled in the property of style and method. They blindly confounded the most distant and discordant institutions. The phalanx of Sparta and that of Macedon, the legions of Cato and Trajan, of Augustus and Theodosius. Even the use, or at least the importance, of these military rudiments may be fairly questioned. Their general theory is dictated by reason, but the merit, as well as difficulty, consists in the application. The discipline of a soldier is formed by exercise rather than by study. The talents of a commander are appropriated to those calm, though rapid, minds, which nature produces to decide the fate of armies and nations. The former is the habit of a life, the latter the glance of a moment, and the battles won by lessons of tactics may be numbered with the epic poems created for the rules of criticism. The Book of Ceremonies is a recital, tedious yet imperfect, of the despicable pageantry which had infected the church and state since the gradual decay of the purity of the one and the power of the other. A review of the themes or provinces might promise such authentic and useful information, as the curiosity of government only can obtain, instead of traditionary fables on the origin of the cities, and malicious epigrams on the vices of their inhabitants. Such information the historian would have been pleased to record. Nor should his silence be condemned, if the most interesting objects, the population of the capital and provinces, the amount of the taxes and revenues, the numbers of subjects and strangers who served under the imperial standard, have been unnoticed by Leo the philosopher and his son Constantine. His treatise of the public administration is strained with the same blemishes, yet it is discriminated by peculiar merit. The antiquities of the nations may be doubtful or fabulous, but the geography and manners of the barbaric world are delineated with curious accuracy. Of these nations, the Franks alone were qualified to observe in their turn, and to describe, the metropolis of the East. The ambassador of the great Otho, a bishop of Cremona, has painted the state of Constantinople about the middle of the tenth century. His style is glowing, his narrative lively, his observations keen. And even the prejudices and passions of Litprand are stamped with an original character of freedom and genius. From this scanty fund of foreign and domestic materials, 
I shall investigate the form and substance of the Byzantine Empire, the provinces and wealth, the civil government and military force, the character and literature of the Greeks in a period of six hundred years. From the reign of Heraclius to his successful invasion of the Franks or Latins. After the final division between the sons of Theodosius, the swarms of barbarians from Scythia and Germany overspread the provinces and extinguished the empire of ancient Rome. The weakness of Constantinople was concealed by extent of dominion. Her limits were inviolate, or at least entire, and the kingdom of Justinian was enlarged by the splendid acquisition of Africa and Italy. But the possession of these new conquests were transient and precarious, and almost a moiety of the Eastern Empire was torn away by the arms of the Saracens. Syria and Egypt were oppressed by the Arabian caliphs, and, after the reduction of Africa, their lieutenants invaded and subdued the Roman province, which had been changed into the Gothic monarchy of Spain. The islands of the Mediterranean were not inaccessible to their naval powers, and it was from their extreme stations, the harbours of Crete and the fortress of Sicilia, that the faithful or rebel emirs insulted the majesty of the throne and capital. The remaining provinces, under the obedience of the emperors, were cast into a new mould, and the jurisdiction of the presidents, the consulars, and the counts were superseded by the institution of the themes or military governments which prevailed under the successors of Heraclius, and are described by the pen of the royal author. Of the twenty-nine themes, twelve in Europe and seventeen in Asia, the origin is obscure, the etymology doubtful or capricious, the limits were arbitrary and fluctuating, but some particular names, that sound the most strangely to Aria, were derived from the character and attributes of the troops that were maintained at the expense, and for the guard, of the respective divisions. The vanity of the Greek princes most eagerly grasped the shadow of conquest and the memory of lost dominion. A new Mesopotamia was created on the western side of the Euphrates. The Appellation and Praetor of Sicily were transferred to a narrow slip of Calibria, and a fragment of the Duchy of Beneventum was promoted to the style and title of the theme of Lombardy. In the decline of the Arabian Empire, the successors of Constantine might not indulge their pride in more solid advantages. The victories of Nicephorus, John Zimaces, and Basil II revived the fame and enlarged the boundaries of the Roman name. The province of Cilicia, the islands of Crete and Cyprus, were restored to the allegiance of Christ and Caesar. One-third of Italy was annexed to the throne of Constantinople. The kingdom of Bulgaria was destroyed, and the last sovereigns of the Macedonian dynasty extended their sway from the sources of the Tigris to their neighbourhood of Rome. In the eleventh century, the prospect was again clouded by new enemies and new misfortunes. The relics of Italy were swept away by the Norman adventurers, and almost all the Asiatic branches were dissevered from the Roman trunk by the Turkish conquerors. After these losses, the emperors of the Comemnian family continued to reign from the Danube to Peloponnesus, and from Belgrade to Nice. 
Tresbond, and the winding stream of the Meander. The spacious provinces of Thrace, Macedonia, and Greece were obedient to their sceptre. The possession of Cyprus, Rhodes, and Crete was accompanied by the fifty islands of the Aegean or a holy sea, and the remnant of their empire transcends the measure of the largest of the European kingdoms. The same princes might assert, with dignity and truth, that of all the monarchs of Christendom, they possessed the greatest city, the most ample revenue, the most flourishing and populous state. With the decline and fall of the empire, the cities of the west had decayed and fallen. Nor could the ruins of Rome, all the mud walls, wooden hovels, and narrow precincts of Paris and London, prepare the Latin stranger to contemplate the situation and extent of Constantinople her stately palaces and churches, and the arts and luxury of an innumerable people. Her treasures might attract, but her virgin strength had repelled, and still promised to repel, the audacious invasion of the Persian and Bulgarian, the Arab and the Russian. The provinces were less fortunate and impregnable, and few districts, few cities, could be discovered which had not been violated by some fierce barbarian, impatient to despoil, because he was hopeless to possess. From the age of Justinian, the Eastern Empire was sinking below its former level. The powers of destruction were more active than those of improvement, and the calamities of war were embittered by the more permanent evils of civil and ecclesiastical tyranny. The captive who had escaped from the barbarians was often stripped and imprisoned by the ministers of his sovereign, the Greek superstition relaxed the mind by prayer, and emaciated the body by fasting. And the multitude of convents and festivals diverted many hands and many days from the temporal service of mankind. Yet the subjects of the Byzantine Empire were still the most dexterous and diligent of nations. Their country was blessed by nature with every advantage of soil, climate, and situation. And, in the support and restoration of the arts. Their patient and peaceful temper was more useful than the warlike spirit and feudal anarchy of Europe. The provinces that still adhered to the empire were repeopled and enriched by the misfortunes of those which were irrevocably lost. From the yoke of the caliphs, the Catholics of Syria, Egypt, and Africa retired to the allegiance of their prince, to the society of their brethren, the movable wealth, which eludes the search of oppression, accompanied and alleviated their exile, and Constantinople received into her bosom the fugitive trade of Alexandria and Tyre. The chiefs of Armenia and Scythia, who fled from hostile or religious persecution, were hospitably entertained. Their followers were encouraged to build new cities, and to cultivate wastelands, and many spots, both in Europe and Asia, preserve the name, the manners, or at least the memory, of these national colonies. Even the tribes of barbarians, who had seated themselves in arms on the territory of the empire, were gradually reclaimed to the laws of the church and state. And as long as they were separated from the Greeks, their posterity supplied a race of faithful and obedient soldiers. Did we possess sufficient materials to survey the twenty-nine themes of the Byzantine monarchy, 
our curiosity might be satisfied with a chosen example. It is fortunate enough that the clearest light should be thrown on the most interesting province, and the name of Peloponnesus will awaken the attention of the classic reader. As early as the eighth century, in the troubled reign of the iconoclasts, Greece, and even Peloponnesus, were overrun by some Sclavonian bands, who outstripped the royal standard of Bulgaria. The strangers of old, Cadmus, and Danaeus, and Pelops, had planted in that fruitful soil the seeds of policy and learning. But the savages of the north eradicated what yet remained of their sickly and withered roots. In this eruption, the country and the inhabitants were transformed, the Grecian blood was contaminated, and the proudest nobles of Peloponnesus were branded with the names of foreigners and slaves. By the diligence of succeeding princes, the land was in some measure purified from the barbarians, and the humble remnant was bound by an oath of obedience, tribute, and military service, which they often renewed and often violated. The siege of Patras was formed by a singular occurrence of the Sclavonians of Peloponnesus, and the Saracens of Africa. In their latest distress, a pious fiction of the approach of the Praetor of Corinth revived the courage of the citizens. Their sally was bold and successful. The strangers embarked, the rebels submitted, and the glory of the day was ascribed to a phantom or a stranger, who fought in the foremost ranks under the character of St. Andrew the Apostle. The shrine, which contained his relics, was decorated with the trophies of victory, and the captive race was forever devoted to the service and vassalage of the metropolitan church of Patras. By the revolt of the two Sclovian tribes, in the neighbourhood of Helos and Lacedaemon, the peace of the peninsula was often disturbed. They sometimes insulted the weakness, and sometimes resisted the oppression of the Byzantine government, till, at length, the approach of their hostile brethren exhorted a golden bull to define the rights and obligations of the Ezraites of the Ezerites and Melengi, whose annual tribute was defined at twelve hundred pieces of gold. From these strangers, the imperial geographer has accurately distinguished a domestic and perhaps original race, who, in some degree, might derive their blood from the much-injured helots. The liberty of the Romans, and especially of Augustus, had enfranchised the maritime cities from the dominion of Sparta, and the continuance of the same benefit ennobled them with the title of Eletheró, of free Laconians. In the time of Constantine Porphyrogenitus, they had acquired the name of Minotis, under which they dishonoured the claim of liberty by the inhuman pillage of all that is shipwrecked on their rocky shores. Their territory, barren of corn, but fruitful of olives, extended to the Cape of Malia, they accepted a chief or prince from the Byzantine praetor, and a light tribute of four hundred pieces of gold was the badge of their immunity, rather than of their dependence. The freemen of Laconia assumed the character of Romans, and long adhered to the religion of the Greeks. By the zeal of the emperor Basil, they were baptized in the faith of Christ, but the altars of Venus and Neptune 
had been crowned by these rustic votaries five hundred years after they were prescribed in the Roman world. In the theme of Peloponnesus, forty cities were still numbered, and the declining state of Sparta, Argos, and Corinth may be suspended in the tenth century, at an equal distance, perhaps, between their antique splendour and their present desolation. The duty of military service, either in person or by substitute, was imposed on the lands or benefices of the province. A sum of five pieces of gold was assessed on each of the substantial tenants. And the same capitation was shared among several heads of inferior value. On the proclamation of an Italian war, the Peloponnesians excused themselves by a voluntary oblation of one hundred pounds of gold, four thousand pounds sterling, and a thousand horses with their arms and trappings. The churches and monasteries furnished their contingent. A sacrilegious profit was exhorted from the sale of ecclesiastical honours. And the indignant Bishop of Lucada was made responsible for a pension of one hundred pieces of gold. But the wealth of the province, and the trust of the revenue, were founded on the fair and plentiful produce of trade and manufacturers, and some symptoms of liberal policy may be traced in a law which exempts from all personal taxes the mariners of Peloponnesus, and the workmen in parchment and purple. This denomination may be fairly applied or extended to the manufacturers of linen, woollen, and more especially of silk, the two former of which had flourished in Greece since the days of Homer, and the last was introduced perhaps as early as the reign of Justinian. These arts, which were exercised at Corinth, Thebes, and Argus, afforded food and occupation to a numerous people. The men, women, and children were distributed according to their age and strength, and, if many of these were domestic slaves, their masters, who directed the work and enjoyed the profit, were of a free and honourable condition. The gifts, which a rich and generous matron of Peloponnesus presented to the Emperor Basil, her adopted son, were doubtless fabricated in the Grecian looms. Danielis bestowed a carpet of fine wool, of a pattern which imitated the spots of a peacock's tail, of a magnitude to overspread the floor of a new church, erected in the triple name of Christ, of Michael the Archangel, and of the prophet Elijah. She gave six hundred pieces of silk and linen, of various use and denomination. The silk was painted with the Tyrian dye, and adorned by the labours of the needle, and the linen was so exquisitely fine that an entire piece might be rolled in the hollow of a cane. In his description of the Greek manufacturers, an historian of Sicily discriminates their price, according to the weight and quality of the silk, the closeness of the texture, the beauty of the colours, and the taste and materials of the embroidery. A single, or even a double or treble thread, was thought sufficient for ordinary sale, but the union of six threads composed a piece of stronger and more costly worksmanship. Among the colours, he celebrates, with affectation of eloquence, the fiery blaze of scarlet, and the softer lustre of the green. The embroidery was raised either in silk or gold. The more simple ornament of stripes or circles was surpassed by the nice imitation of flowers. 
the vestments that were fabricated for the palace or for the altar often glittered with precious stones, and the figures were delineated in strings of oriental pearls. Till the twelfth century, Greece alone, of all the countries of Christendom, was possessed of the instinct who is taught by nature, and of the workmen who are instructed by art to prepare this elegant luxury. But the secret had been stolen by the dexterity and diligence of the Arabs. The caliphs of the east and west scorned to borrow from the unbelievers their furniture and apparel. And two cities of Spain, Almira and Lisbon, were famous for the manufacture, the use, and, perhaps, the exportation of silk. It was first introduced into Sicily by the Normans, and this emigration of trade distinguishes the victory of Roger from the uniform and fruitless hostilities of every age. After the sack of Corinth, Athens, and Thebes, his lieutenant embarked with a captive train of weavers and artificers of both sexes, a trophy glorious to their master, and disgraceful to the Greek emperor. The king of Sicily was not insensible of the value of the present, and, in the restitution of the prisoners, he accepted only the male and female manufacturers of Thebes and Corinth, who labour, says the Byzantine historian, under a barbarous lord, like the old Eritreans in the service of Darius. A stately edifice, in the palace of Palamo, was erected for the use of this industrious colony, and the art was propagated by their children and disciples to satisfy the increasing demand of the western world. The decay of the looms of Sicily may be ascribed to the troubles of the island, and the competition of the Italian cities. In the year 1314, Lucca alone, among her sister republics, enjoyed the lucrative monopoly a domestic revolution dispersed the manufacturers to Florence, Bologna, Venice, Milan, and even the countries beyond the Alps. And thirteen years after this event, the statutes of Medina enjoin the planting of mulberry trees, and regulate the duties on raw silk. The northern climates are less proprietors to the education of the silkworm. But the industry of France and England is supplied and enriched by the productions of Italy and China. End of chapter 53, part 1